0: welcome again to door creek online thanks for joining us hey thanks for sharing this service to uh, your family and friends that's great it's been fun to connect with people all around the city and our state and beyond we are very excited to be offering not just online christmas eve services but also in person if you are ready and feel comfortable we're taking every precaution to make sure that you're socially distanced. We're all gonna be wearing masks. We got some new fancy-dancy cleaners, hydrostatic electric Clorox cleaners, all the surfaces touched, and we're gonna do everything we can to have wonderful services. You need to make reservations. Those open up this weekend, so you can do that online. And we got lots of services at our three campuses. Four different hours here at Sprecker, two different hours at De Forest, and a service on our north side campus as well. So the expectations, guys, if you haven't been to a Thursday night, this room uh, at Christmas time would be 700 people plus. And we won't only be able to have about a couple hundred here. Okay, so it's not going to have the same look and feel, but it's going to be a beautiful time of singing, of worship, of hearing stories of God's. Uh, life-changing work in people's lives, and a great opportunity for us to give generously through our partners and the work that they're doing, Rwanda, Honduras, Haiti, and all around our city here. So we look forward to joining you on Christmas Eve. And then in the new year, uh, after things kind of calm down, the holidays, we are planning to open up all three campuses the weekend of January 17th. So Sunday the 17th, all three campuses. If I've got my math right, it'll be after 313 days that we last met on a Sunday at our campuses. And we'll be looking forward to worshiping with you. More on that in the new year. Well, we've been working through John's gospel. Come and see. And uh, what I want to do on this weekend before Christmas is connect John's gospel to Christmas and the Christmas story to our passage here in John chapter 7. There's a couple of texts that you could say are the Christmas texts in John's gospel, one of them being the most familiar verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave, there it is, Christmas, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now we're gonna unpack this, this word, the world. The world that God loved, the world that he sent his son into, is the world Jesus says in John chapter 7 that hates him. And the world that hates Jesus, we find out, is the world that Jesus loves. So grab your Bibles, and we're going to be looking at the first 24 verses. The first part is all about the world that hates Jesus. The second part, it's all about the world that Jesus loves, and Jesus loves Jesus love for the world. So we start our reading in John chapter 7 verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea, that's south where Jerusalem is, because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, these would be his half-brothers, leave Galilee and go to Judea. So that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify its works are evil. You go to the festival I'm not going up to the festival because my time is not yet fulfilled. My time is not yet fully come. After he'd said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no. He deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him. For fear of the leaders. So the setting is the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the final of the great feasts. There's like seven feasts in Judaism. It's one of the three pilgrimage feasts. Passover and then seven weeks later Pentecost. And then about six months after Passover. Passover is in the spring. We have this autumn festival that's called the feast of tabernacles. The feast of tabernacles looked back to the time when God's people lived in the wilderness for 40 years and God faithfully took care of them. He faithfully met their needs. Remember there was the manna the bread from heaven every day six days a week on the sixth day enough for the seventh day. There was the quail there was the water and during that time they didn't live in houses because they were always on the move. They were camping out. They were living in tents. And so this is the time. Where actually for a week. The people would travel to Jerusalem. And the families would erect. This kind of handmade tent. And they would celebrate this feast there would be a big everybody celebrating on the first day a big celebration with everybody on the last day there would be offering of sacrifices there would be parades with palm branches there would be singing and there would be dancing and they would stay in those little tents and they would sometimes sleep in those tents and they would remember they'd remember all that God had done But it wasn't just remembering God's faithful and good provision in the wilderness. It was celebrating his good and faithful provision today with the harvest. Because this is the time when they're bringing in the grapes. This is the time when they've harvested all the olives. And so they're celebrating, God, you've been so good. You've been so faithful. We worship you. We thank you. But it also had this future view to it as well. This time when God would send his Messiah some of the prophets talked about it, like Zechariah in chapter 14, when this new world would be set up and God would be king over the world. and He'd set up the kingdom through his Messiah, his promised Savior, who would bring these living waters, who would pour out his spirit and giving life to the world. So this is the feast. And for the Jews, as the historian Josephus would put it, it was their favorite. I mean, come on. If you're a kid, of course it's your favorite. This is like a week-long camping trip with your cousins and all your best friends. This is awesome. So that's the setting. And then we, we get to his brothers and we realize his brothers want Jesus to go to the festival because that's what they've done as a family all their lives. And so they're talking to Jesus. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And Jesus says, I'm not going to go with you. And we're surprised that his brothers, the very ones who were there in chapter 2, seeing Jesus do the miracle with turning all the water into wine. Like, that's not like his least miracle. Changing the metabolical, you know, components and chemistry of that water into wine. That was a mind-blowing miracle. They didn't believe, it says, verse 5. They didn't yet believe. We know they're going to, many of his brothers. One of his brothers, James, becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he writes the letter in our Bibles by his name, the book of James. But at this point, they don't believe. And so they're going, hey man, if you're really the Messiah, you're doing these great works up here. But man, this is backwater country. You need to get to the political center. You need to get to the religious center. Jesus, you need to take your roadshow to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, we don't know. Is there some sarcasm? It appears to be some sarcasm. Is there some jealousy? Very likely. The crowds are following this brother all over everywhere. Remember? Is there jealousy? Is there ridicule here? We don't know. All we know is, verse 5, they don't believe. And so it reminds us a little bit of Psalm 69 that was written a thousand years before Jesus, prophetically speaking of Jesus. I'm a foreigner to my own family a stranger to my own mother's children. See, his brothers would be half-brothers through his mother. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and his mother Mary. These were his mother's children, his brothers, his half-brothers, who didn't believe. So Jesus says, you guys go, it's not my time. And And then we see that he goes and we're going, oh, wait a minute, what's going on here, Jesus? Were you not telling the truth? No, he's telling the truth. You guys want me to go. And for what you want me to go. I'm not part of that. And by the way. My time to go up. Going up is not just pilgrimage. Going up as he's going to leave Galilee. For the last time. And now head to Jerusalem. Where he'll be there the next six months. Until he's pinned to a Roman cross. He said it's not yet my time. I march to the father's will. I'm not supposed to be there. At the beginning of this festival. And so he shows up. And we pick up the story. As uh, We continue on in the text, realizing that, hey, when he gets to Jerusalem, man, when he gets to Jerusalem, there's leaders who want to kill him. What's that about? Well, they wanted to kill him since chapter 5, verse 18. There's a crowd who's divided. You know, there's a bunch of people that are asking for him, but some think he's crazy. Some think he's a deceiver. Some think maybe he's a good guy, right? But they're all whispering and they're all grumbling in hushed tones because they're fearful of the leadership. But what strikes us in this opening section here is Jesus' words about you can go because the world doesn't hate you, because you're part of the world. But the world hates me. And the reason it hates me is because of this. I testify. I reveal as light always does. The works of the world, which are not in conformity with God. They're not in conformity with the great commandment to love God with all that you have, to love your neighbor as yourself. I reveal all that is broken in people, all the rebelliousness of a person's heart. And so people don't like that. Well, he's already told us this. John has in John chapter 3, verse 18. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, speaking of Jesus. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And in my mind's eye, I can still see that that 10 o'clock news story where they've arrested somebody and the lights of the camera are on and they put their coat over, right? They're kind of doing one of these. And I want people to see him. Jesus is the light. Chapter one, the light cannot over, the darkness cannot overcome the light of Christ. He reveals all that is opposed to God, all that isn't loving God with all that we have. So the crowd's take on Jesus is three things. He's a good man, he's a deceiver, or he's demon-possessed. A good man, a deceiver, a liar leading people astray, or demon-possessed. It reminds me of Lewis's classic quote in Mere Christianity. It goes like this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, akin to he's a good man, verse 12. But I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say, Lewis says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg. I love that. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God. Or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense. About his being a great human teacher. He did not intend to. He did not not leave that open to us. He did not intend to. So we pick up the story. He slipped away after his brothers. He's made it in. And now in the middle of the feast. He shows up teaching in the temple courts. Verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, that is from Abraham, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. All right, so we've just been looking at the world that hates Jesus, right? The brothers, the crowd, the religious leaders, everybody in the story, right? Now we're going to look at Jesus' love for this world that hates him, all right? And what we're going to see is Jesus loves this world by going to Jerusalem when he could have stayed. He loves the world by teaching pointing out their need for a savior when he could have just done more miracles. He loves the world by dying in our place when Jesus could have just skipped the whole trip, the whole deal all the way to the cross and saved his own neck, just being back into heaven. So first, Jesus loves the world by going when he could have stayed, by moving towards us. This is the incarnation and this you guys chapter 7 is this this is the gospel story. It's the Christmas story in miniature of God seeing the great need of this world separated from him because of our rebellion right and he sends his son knowing that the people that he's going to send his son to are not going to recognize him as God's promised Savior. Savior they're not going to acknowledge that he's the lot of them and they're going to kill him. He knows that. And so this is what's going on. It's this powerful picture in miniature of Christmas. He's moving intentionally. Because it's the father's will. That expresses the father's heart. His love. And what we know from the the gospel of John. Is this will be the last time that he's been in Galilee. Now that he's made his way down to the feast of tabernacles in Jerusalem. He's there. He's there for the next six months till Passover when he's crucified on a Roman cross. Jesus loves the world by going, going to Jerusalem, coming to this world when he could have stayed in heaven, when he could have stayed in Galilee. Second, Jesus loves the world by teaching, pointing out our need for a savior, bringing God's truth to the world. His teaching not only amazed, it pointed out their their hypocrisy it convicted, and it brought about this understanding that they needed a savior. Even the most religious needed a savior. So there's an interesting going th- thing going on here. They're all asking the question: Who's this guy? Where did he get his learning? Because in that day, authority was derived from another teacher. That you it would be like if we got this degree from this institution. And so we're, we're an expert because we have this piece of paper, this diploma. We've done this D PhD work or master's work. We got a, a bachelor's, right? And, and that certifies, right? We've got this tra- He doesn't have, who's this guy? He hasn't been with any rabbi. He says, no, no, no. My, my, I come from, from heaven. My, my authority is from heaven. My message, my works, he's been saying, it's all connected to the fathers. And so he's establishing his authority again. They're amazed at his teaching. And what's interesting here, when he talks about, look at, what I'm telling you is true. It's the Father's will. And if you do the Father's will, you'll know that what I'm saying is true. See, we would normally say, I'll follow when I believe it's true. Jesus says, follow and you will find that it is true. Maybe that would be a good one for us right now as we're questioning Christianity. Take Jesus uh, on the challenge, Jesus is saying, take me at my word and see if it's not true in your heart of life, in your, re- in, in your experience, as you find your place in this world, as you find how Jesus meets all that's happened in your past that you cannot change and fix, but walks into your present today and how he deals with all of your today and gives you bright hope for tomorrow. Take him at his word and see if it's not true. And, and you're sitting here going, well, I can't do that until I find out it's true. Jesus is saying, try it the other way around. Would you do that this Christmas season? His teaching is one of the ways in which he loved the world. His teaching, which made singular his mission and motivation to do the Father's will, all for the Father's glory. wasn't about my glory. It's about his glory. And then his teaching brought conviction. So that the most religious people of the day, we find out need a savior. Good works won't satisfy God's holy standard. The most religious people need a savior. That's like a really important teaching here in John chapter seven. I, I, I don't know how you, you know, I, I, I use this phrase, you've been going to church since you were knee-high to hymn book. I don't know how long you've been. I don't know what kind of practices you have. But it's really easy for us to feel self righteous and good about ourselves because all the things that we do. And John chapter 7 is telling us the most religious people of the day and their religion and their practices so far eclipse anything you could think of today. They need a Savior. Good works will not suffice. And so what does Jesus say? Verse 19. None of you guys keep the law. And you guys say that you are the teachers of the law. And the protectors of the law. And you're going after me for breaking the law. And the fact is you're trying to kill me. And in trying to kill me you're breaking the sixth command. And you don't even understand the law. The very law that allows you to circumcise your baby boy on the eighth day. Even if that falls on Sabbath. And in so doing you keep the law. Even the law says, keep the Sabbath holy and refrain from working. So he says, I too keep the Sabbath command when I did something far greater than to remove the foreskin of a little baby boy on the eighth day. When I made this man's body whole body, mind, soul, whole. So stop judging me by mere appearances. So, three ways Jesus loves the world, right? By going when he could have stayed, by teaching, pointing out their need for Savior, when he could have just done more miracles. And we know this from previous, the miracles didn't bring people to faith always. A lot of times, most of the times. And then the final thing is, Jesus loved the world by dying, coming to die. You go, where's that in the text? I didn't see that. Well, it's in this little word, two words, my time, verse 6. My time. Sometimes he'll use the expression my hour. Like he did in, in chapter 2. When Mary says Jesus you got to do something. And He says woman well, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 7 verse 30. No one laid a hand on him. Because his hour had not yet come. Same thing in 820. In 1223 through 27. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. What is he talking about? His death. Because he says in verse 27. Father. Father. Please take this hour. Take this hour from my, my life. In the same ways that Jesus said, take this cup away from me. I don't want to take the cup of your wrath and die for the sins of the world. Save me from this hour. He's talking about his death. And so when we think about John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave, that's Christmas. That's Jesus coming intentionally. That's coming as the word revealing who God is, the Father's heart revealing who we are and our broken hearts and our need for Christ. It's all about that. But when we, let's not get sentimental this Christmas and just see Jesus in a cradle, in a manger. We need to understand that he was born to die. He was all going because he came to seek and to save that which is lost. He says, "I, I didn't come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah's great prophecies, the one who would be pierced and crushed and wounded for our sin in our place. So we note this as we bring it home, that Jesus coming then and today through his church brought and brings controversy and division. Expect that as we live to tell others about Jesus. Jesus' life and ministry prepares us to expect rejection when we live for Jesus Christ, as we proclaim him, God's only son, the only hope for this world. Jesus put it this way in John 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So who's the world that hates Jesus? Well, it's the world that Jesus loves. Who's Jesus love? He loves everybody. His love was for his brothers. that didn't get it though they had a front seat to it all, who at this point were ridiculing him, maybe dripping with sarcasm, maybe wanted him dead as they pushed him towards Jerusalem to those who would take his life. Who is the world? Those who are curious. He loves the curious who only see him as a good teacher. Who is the world that he loves? Those who wrote him off, calling him what? A deceiver, a liar, someone who's bogus, a charlatan. Somebody's crazy, demon possessed. He loves the world. He loves the religious, the very religious, who appear intellectually honest as they're interested with these sophisticated questions, but they're dripping with hypocrisy. He loves them. He loves you and he loves me. Catch up to this. There isn't anything that you've done. There isn't anything that you could do that would stop God, that stop Jesus from loving you, for God so loved you that he gave his one and only son that whoever you believing in his name will not perish but have life. Jesus came to give us life in spite of all that he faced. He came. He was on trial 2000 years ago and guys he's on trial today some are open and receptive maybe that's you man what a great thing to take Jesus up on this to to follow him to take him at his word and see if it's not true and some are not you're not ready maybe you're cynical maybe you're hostile but here's what i know like 2000 years ago the setting's tense when it comes to associating with Jesus. Man, there were hushed tones. Nobody wanted to be uh, wrongly associated with Jesus, the one that they're hunting to kill. And there's a lot of pressure today, as there's always been. It's not new. You feel it as a middle school student with your peers, like man, it, just, it doesn't count for anything with my, with my peers. You feel it on your sports team. You feel it in the academy as you're pursuing your degrees, teaching your courses. A follower of Jesus, you checked your mind, what's wrong with you? You feel it in the workplace. You feel it in culture in society, all over the place. We feel this pressure that would cancel us out if we call ourselves follower of Jesus Christ. So where's the hypocrisy in my life, in our lives? The charge against the church is uniform. It's full of hypocrites. And the sooner we get this answer uh, going, every time you hear that is, you're exactly right. And I'm like at the front of the line. There is inconsistency in my life. And that's why I'm clinging to Christ every day. And I'm not asking you to follow me. I'm asking you to follow Jesus. What about our hypocrisy? We've had such a problem with the looting going on this summer, very little problem fudging on our expense reports for our business. Staunchly pro life, neglecting our own aging parents, decrying our national debt, all the while racking up $30,000, $40,000 of credit card debt. So quick to point out the sexual sins of others as we sleep with someone who's not our spouse find ourselves continuing with this addiction of pornography where's the hypocrisy where's the hypocrisy preacher who's talking to people about hypocrisy I mean God help us God help us finally like Jesus who calls us to be his followers who in our lives do we need to take a risk and move towards with the grace and truth of Christ Someone that right now you go, I don't know. That doesn't feel safe. It wasn't safe for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. It wasn't safe for him to come to this world. He gave up his life. What does it look like for us to give up our lives for someone else that they might meet Jesus Christ? God's ultimate provision in the wilderness of our lives here in the middle of the story. In a broken, twisted, fallen world. In the Christmas carol, Born to Die... The lyric goes, it must have broken God's heart for the future he could see. Yet he formed his hands and feet, knowing one day they'd be nailed to a tree. So all the world could know it. A gift came from above for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus, baby Jesus. Is that a tear in your eye? Jesus, baby Jesus. You must know you were born to die. Let's pray. So Father God, we just, we praise you that you in your great mercy and love before the foundation of this world had a Christmas plan. That had each of us in view. And forgive us for dressing up Christmas in all this glitz and glamour and sediment when at the heart of Christmas, Lord, is this just unbelievable gripping story that you would give up your son, Jesus, that you would take and be wrapped in human flesh, and that you would so identify us to the point where you would actually carry all of our wrongdoings on yourself on the cross so that we could find life and forgiveness and a relationship with the God who made us and knows us and loves us. And so, Lord, we thank you for coming, for us, intentionally pursuing us all the way to the cross. We thank you that you're the word that reveals truth about who you are, about this world, about the Father, about our own brokenness and our need for Jesus. Do that work in our lives, Lord. Lord, we thank you for dying, for coming to die, that we might find life. And so, Lord Jesus, this Christmas, we bow before you and we see you as our king, even God's son, the hope of the world. And we pray all this with joy in our hearts, Lord. In your name, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.